the middle of the week and plenty happening on RTE Radio 1 today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Oh, this is such a name drop, but there you go. Whenever I was telling Piers this, whenever he came in, it then occurred to me, when was the last time Piers Brosnan was standing in a three-bedroom semi-detached house? Probably a wee while ago. Carrot <laughs> Calavine is an ad for not settling, um, having an alternative lifestyle and keeping your eyebrows. You know, looking back, I wonder how we managed to survive. It was truly horrendous and I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy that my grandchildren will not have to grow up being afraid of the sound of bombs or bullets. And we'll start in the afternoon. A catch-up with singer-songwriter Bray's finest Hosier was chatting to Ray Darcy. Hosier, how are you? Good. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having us. It's been a number of years. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years. Yeah, Wasteland Baby. So what year was that released in? Early 2019, was it? I don't know. Yeah, early 2019. And you flirted with a few projects like Medusa. Yeah, I I featured on a Medusa song. Yes. And and um, I did release a a song. Maren Morris. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was with Maren Morris on a song called Bo the bones tell us about that because that's what I, like I only discovered that yesterday yeah. yeah it's a beautiful song it is a beautiful song it is a beautiful song I was very touched to be asked you know to join to join her on it um, it was released I believe before I was on it and I always just thought look that's gorgeous that doesn't need me you know <laughs> yeah. um, but it's a it's a beaut and it was a nice moment you know it was a nice moment to, to hop on that I think um, I was on the road at the time I was in Switzerland so we found it we had a day off and I, I, I did it in, in somewhere in Switzerland I want to say I think and she wasn't there so you just recorded yeah. Yeah, so we, we did it from a, we did it from a distance, sadly. But um, myself and Marin, interestingly enough, I was flying back from LA into Nashville. I just finished up rehearsing in Nashville for a couple of weeks with the new band, who are fantastic. And Marin just happens to be in the airport, right at the gate. She's heading back to Nashville, and it's like, oh, hello, how's it going? And we exchange, you know, we just chat, catch up for a moment. And then, as it turns out, we're literally next to each other on the on the plane. So what a good catch up. Marin's such a wonderful artist, and she's a beautiful person. And, but yeah, I was delighted to to be part of that. And you having such a wonderful voice, Hosier, you must get asked a lot to do collaborations and duets. Yeah, they can. It's it's hard to get them in. My my manager there is nodding. She probably, <laughs> yeah, she probably gets more requests <laughs> yeah, than I. Yeah. <laughs> texture from them. Yeah, yeah. In a few years' time, you meet Stevie Wonder, and he goes, "Sorry, we couldn't do that duet I wanted to do." Which, and you go, "Carl, <laughs> exactly." I don't think Stevie Wonder is always a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my God. Uh, so you've new music. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an EP, Eat Your Young, three songs, um, and then there's an album coming out later in the year, Unreal, on Earth. Mm-hmm. It's ten years. People are going to go, "No, it's not right." It is ten years since the release of I know. Take Me to Church. I know. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were working on it probably this time ten years ago, and. I was reading that you felt no pressure. Yeah, there's something you miss actually is being a new artist and, and no one knew me. Yes. You know, I literally, I left Trinity College and I felt the pressure of a dropout, you know, <laughs> that it's like, okay, well, I have to make sense of being a musician now. But apart from that, I, I always thought, okay, I'm going to be this. It was like a very, I was coming from a very indie space, a sort of an alternative folk space, you know, and um that song just exploded, you know, and and so, but there was no pressure. And I think the decisions I made in writing that song and producing it, there was no consideration of, okay, how does the song sound at radio? We'd never even thought about that, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And you have to try and get back to there when you're writing, I would imagine. Um, That is, I I think it is, there is, you have to cultivate this idea that, yeah, you try to get back to that space exactly where you're writing for nothing but for what the song needs and what you need out of the song, you know. Of course, then you have an audience Mm -hmm. and you have fans. Yeah. Is there a loop? I'm always intrigued, is there a loop? Is there a feedback loop where where they're commenting on songs, liking particular songs, singing along to other songs? Yeah. And does that colour what you do? Yeah, I think it, it can. I think... 
what I would try to do is step outside that loop. And I think it's important if you can, because you, you don't you hear a lot of artists. David Bowie has a great quote on that, where you, if, you're, if you're writing to try and meet other people's expectations of what, what it is that, that you are, you're, you're probably going to produce your least interesting work, right. you know. And so and I think for your sense of fulfillment, just as an artist as well, I think it's good to cultivate your own little world. You know what I mean? Like Like find your own space, your own little place where you can summon whatever it is that you need to get out of the work just and, and do that on your own in your own make sense of it your own yes. in your own way and or, then let it out to the world and let it out to the world yeah and Ray asked Hosier about the new album Pitch Capping right I thought, oh, what yes. the hell is Pitch Capping yes but you've mentioned Pitch Capping in one of the songs which is okay. to appear on the album yeah and this is all linked to uh, Dante's mm-hmm. Inferno mm-hmm. and the Nine Rings of Hell Okay, yeah. So it's not a, it's not a concept album, but it's been inspired by. Is that, is it's more I've structured the album into a bit of a journey. I wanted to sort of nod to, without doing like, hey, everyone, here's my lockdown album or here's my pandemic album, um, to sort of structure the album in a way that was like, I think, I think in the last two, three years, we all walked into something or found ourselves amongst something. Our, our context for a lot of things changed and we had to either change with it a lot of us lost something. The world changed for a lot of us. And then we came out the other side. And so here we are. So I, I just wanted to sort of nod to that experience and nod to that journey a little bit, albeit not tie it to a kind of a, here's a... Here's Without literally pen. referring to exactly. Like, so there's little nods to Inferno here and there. You don't need to have done a bloody book report on it. They're fairly, right. It's very broad, very okay. playful as well. It's very loose right. and playful. I want to hammer that home. Pitch capping. Pitch capping. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> we won't get there eventually. So, oh yeah. So why why do we end up in pitch camp? And that song, it's about what's heard. That song is kind of about what's heard. The lyric is is uh, as a young man blessed to pass so many road signs, and have my foreign ears made fresh again on each unlikely sound, but feel at home hearing a music that few still understand. Uh, a butchered tongue still singing here above the ground. And the second verse opens up that the ears were chopped from young men if the pitch cap didn't kill them. Right. So that is something that did happen here. So the pitch that, capping was, now correct me if I'm wrong because you've done the research. So they had a funnel which yeah. they filled with tar yeah. and put onto somebody's head. Yes. Then they let the tar cool yeah. Yeah. and then ripped it off yeah. which would take the hair if you had hair. It was like a scalping. Yeah. Scalping. Yeah. And it, that's... that's um, Associated with the Wexford Rebellion, so 1798. And was it to get information or was it just... Uh, no, it was just a punish punishment. And, and it was kind of terrifying to yes. terrorise uh, people. So it was young men who had short cropped hair. It was right. referred to as croppies. And, and yeah. you went there during Covid. Oh, nice. That was cheery. Hosier <laughs> on the Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was in for Ryan Tipperty and he was pondering on the mysteries of John Gartland's ancient Easter egg. Now, the Irish Mirror informs us today that there's an Irish man who was given an Easter egg that he found was just too nice to eat and he still won't let his family touch it. Uh, the Easter egg has been in his, in his possession for 45 years. Who is this man? John Gartland from Kilcurry, Dundalk, County Louth. He got the egg as a present in 1978 when he was only five years of age. And he said, that's just too nice to open. He's the tech director of Net One Broadband. I know this guy because he provides the broadband up in the, up in the, the far reaches of the northeast. It's the north with a small n, you understand. So uh, I was curious, the egg is still in the fridge. He keeps it in the fridge. A first cousin of my mum's, Gertie Garraher, from Tully Donnell and Armagh, I gave it to me when I was five. At the time, Easter eggs were much plainer than they are now, not much to look at, but this one was different. 
This one came in a greenish-yellow box with a little toy kitten beside it. I remembered it looked so nice. I didn't want to eat it. It was put in the fridge. The next year, we didn't think it would be safe to eat, so it stayed in the fridge. And 45 years later, the egg is still in the fridge in the same house where he still lives. Now, John says he's not sentimental. What? But the egg will stay put in the fridge and his family know not to touch it. Uh, probably gone through four different fridges, but the egg is still there in the top. That's the big fridge. And that's amazing. Still in foil. There's a little bit exposed. It doesn't look mouldy, but I still wouldn't chance tasting it. There you go. That is the story of John Gartland and his egg, which feels like there's a Citizen Kane type of story to be made about it. And the egg really means something else, doesn't it? Rosebud. The egg is rosebud. What does the egg mean, John Gartland? Oliver Callan in the morning. And on Morning Ireland, the investigation into allegations of sexual assault within the Defence Forces. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris spoke to Gavin Jennings. These allegations of sexual abuse within the Defence Forces, have they already been investigated by Garda? Uh, these are investigations that, that we have our complaints and investigations that we've received over a number of years. So what we want to do is actually review those investigations, but secondly, uh, to ask uh, the, those individuals who've been the victims of serious sexual assault, sexual assault in the Defence Forces, if they wish to make a report, to come forward to Angarda Shikana, and we have specialist uh, member specialist uh, detectives in every division who can undertake that uh, investigation. So uh, I'm making an appeal today for for individuals uh, who wish to make complaints to come forward to us. We're obviously qualified to do this with competent specialist uh, individuals who can take these investigations on. But if they've already been investigated, what's new about what you're doing now? Well, we only have... 26 complaints, and they are dating right back to uh, the early 60s. So what, is, what has been uh, revealed in, in uh, recent years would, would suggest there are far more complaints that have yet to be made uh, to Ngarda Shikana, and I appeal to victims to come forward. So there's more to do. We believe there's more that we need to investigate, and, and therefore I make this appeal. Do all allegations of sexual assault within the Defence Forces get referred to Gardaí? Um, no, that that is that has not been the case. Uh, we have only received these uh, complaints, so th- that is where individual um, members of the defence forces have come to us directly. And uh, hitherto, they, they, it might have been, they may have been told, "Oh no, that that lies within the military jurisdiction," or that was actually outside of this jurisdiction completely in, in some other country. But we would say to anyone who wishes to make a complaint, come forward to us. And, and we will receive your complaint and investigate it. And will you, can you investigate if crimes involving Irish Defence Forces happened abroad? Well, uh, there is an issue in respect of uh, what our jurisdiction might be. Uh, there is legislation dating back to 2004, which did extend jurisdiction in terms of criminal matters. But we want to just clarify that precisely to make sure that that can be retrospective and does apply then also to uh, serious sexual offending. So uh, th- that's something that we're addressing at the moment. And indeed, if, uh, if a legislative amendment uh, is required, then we would seek that as well. The Women of Honour say, what happens if the person you're complaining about is your superior officer? They'll know you've gone to Gardaí with an allegation, yet they're still in control of your life, of your job. So what protections are in place for victims? Well, uh, we will deal with people in an absolutely confidential manner. 
And then at a point when we gather evidence, uh, we report matters then to the Director of Public Prosecutions. But we're also going to have to liaise with, uh, obviously, our colleagues then in the Defence Forces. Where those circumstances arise, the victim comes first. We are very much a victim-centred organisation, and that is our responsibility in law, and that's our responsibility in terms of, of treating people properly. And, and at the centre of this, it's paramount, the protection of a victim. So we will work with the Defence Forces in respect of this, but obviously uh, we will deal with people's complaints confidentially. We report them to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Okay. That is an entirely confidential process. Why do you believe there are predators in the Defence Forces? Well, it, one has to look at the experience in, in other institutions where people use a position of power uh, and an imbalance in power actually then to conduct offending. And having long experience of dealing with other cases of historical abuse uh, in institutions, you can see these patterns of behaviour. Individual individuals and a small number of individuals are multiple offenders. Can you tell us about how many previous investigations into assault, sexual assault within the Defence Forces by Gardaí have resulted in prosecution and conviction? Uh, well, I haven't, I haven't got those uh, statistics. We are reviewing all the work we've done previously, uh, and we will have that in terms of just what the results uh, have been. But what we want to say at the moment is like, our investigation of rape, serious sexual assault, has really moved on. We've invested in training. We've invested in, spe- in specialist detectives for this. This is a, a nationwide operation, and we can respond to complaints from members of the Defence Forces either serving or retired. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris speaking to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. Then later, Katie Hannan, the journalist behind the Women of Honour documentary for RTE Radio 1, spoke to Claire Byrne. Katie, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Did you and the women you've spoken to over the last year and longer expect that this would happen and that the Gardaí would launch this investigation? Um... Well, I suppose, first of all, I should say it is to be welcomed. Any investigation into these matters is to be welcomed. Um, I think there's some surprise this morning, to be honest, with the people I've been speaking to, at least, that this has kind of come as a bolt out of the blue. They they hadn't been made aware of this. And I suppose the surprise is that if they were, uh, if, if you were about to launch an investigation like this and you were serious about it, you, you would think the, your first port of call would be Uh, groups like the Women of Honour who Mm -hmm. have been out there and have been supporting people uh, with these allegations and uh, people who have found themselves in this position. So, uh, as I say, they're a little bit surprised by that. But certainly, I think, the the, the element of what Drew Harris was talking about this morning in terms of uh, a central uh, place where all of the information would be gathered um, and this idea that if if there were predators out there with, with... you know, responsible for multiple offences against multiple victims, that this information would now be coordinated and uh, gathered together for any DPP mm-hmm. file. So that's hugely important. I think anyone who watched our programme on Monday night will have seen Rosalind O'Callaghan, uh, extraordinarily courageous interview uh, about her, um, what happened to her in her first tour of the Lebanon. And the striking part of that story, of course, is that she discovered very late in the day in 2016 that the the man who had done that to her had been responsible for doing a very uh, similar um, offence with another member of the Defence Forces mm-hmm. just two years after after she had um, she had announced what had happened to her. She had tried to pursue what had happened to her. This investigation 
might be very complicated though and there is an issue isn't there as to whether Gardaí will have jurisdiction to investigate crimes which may have happened overseas. Now Drew Harris was asked about this on Morning Ireland earlier. We'll just listen to what he had to say. Well uh, there is an issue in respect of uh, what our jurisdiction might be. Uh, There is legislation dating back to 2004 which did extend jurisdiction in terms of criminal matters but we want to just clarify that precisely to make sure that that can be retrospective and does apply then also to uh, serious sexual offending. So uh, that's something that we're addressing at the moment and indeed if if a legislative amendment uh, is required then we would seek that as well. Okay, well we'll be speaking to Edmund Sweetman who's a barrister and maritime law practitioner in a moment Katie but you say the Istanbul Convention may have a role to play? Well, I mean, I, again, I'm no lawyer, Claire, but th- we did sign the Istanbul Convention. There was legislation introduced in 2019 uh, to back that up. And that extended jurisdiction in cases. Uh, it was the Istanbul Convention is all around domestic violence, but it did extend jurisdiction in cases of serious crimes such as sexual offences. But, I mean, it's very interesting what Drew Harris had to say there because. Um, in very recent times, like post the broadcast of our documentary, a new victim information handbook was prepared for members of the Defence Forces. And it said in that very clearly, it said, if you were a victim of a crime while serving overseas, the MPs, that's the military police, will be the primary investigating organisation. Then it mentioned that the UN MPs and local police might have a role. But then it goes on to say, on Garda Shikona has no jurisdiction outside of Ireland. And actually, in, in, in this in this handbook, it, the no is in caps and underlined. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that uh, Drew Harris is saying there quite clearly that there has been instances where Garda have had jurisdiction in criminal matters overseas. Uh, but that members of the Defence Forces were being told up to in recent months this is still active, this is live, this is what they're being told today, that the guards have absolutely no jurisdiction. And I can tell you that I've spoken to so many people, whether the crimes happened overseas or uh, in Ireland, who were members of the Defence Forces, very serious, very serious uh, allegations being brought forward and they were told and very strongly discouraged from taking those allegations to the guards. They were told to keep it in-house. And clearly on the legal front, there's going to have to be some clarity brought to that question about the the jurisdiction. You mentioned your interview on Monday night on Upfront with Katie Hannan, which is available to watch on the RTE player if anyone wants to go back and have a look at Rosalind O'Callaghan. But since that broadcast, Katie, have you had more people come forward? I have had um, more, yes. I've had contact from... um, Another source, uh, not in relation to to the the predator in that case, but about another another uh, more allegations. Let me just put it that way: mm-hmm. more allegations of another um, predator with multiple um, multiple victims. Uh, so, again, these are allegations, obviously, at this stage, and I haven't um, we haven't been able to pursue them ourselves yet. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that there are <laughs> there are a lot of stories out there, but the, the difficulty is that. The, the women of honour are just concerned that this has come out of nowhere. They haven't been approached about this, which is again thing. And they also have, they're also a little concerned about what this might mean for the statutory inquiry that they have been promised. Because, you know, could they now get to a situation where when it comes to these matters, which they had hoped would be, you know, would would, would be part of the statutory inquiry, will they now be told, sorry, that's, that's, um, that's a criminal investigation now and we can't, 
we can't go there. Katie Hannan there. Then Claire spoke to Edmund Sweetman, a barrister and expert in maritime law. So that question about what would happen if the sexual assault or rape was committed in another jurisdiction, is that something that the Gardaí at present could investigate and could it lead to a prosecution? Um, well, it certainly would depend on the, the nature of the specific uh, of the specific offence concerned, and uh, probably, as your your listeners may already be aware of, um, uh, certain obligations fell on the state uh, on the Irish state when it signed up to the Istanbul Convention, uh, and that was implemented then uh, subsequently by the Criminal Law Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act 2019. But traditionally, uh, the view in the Irish law was that uh, offences committed on board an Irish ship were, were FM was effectively committed on Irish territory. Uh, Offences committed by Irish citizens in other countries uh, require a much more nuanced approach. Uh, and effectively, they would be seen as subject to the jurisdiction of that other territory. Uh, mm-hmm. So the extent to which the, um, those uh, those offences could... Uh, I think a differentiation has to be made between what the Gardaí can investigate and uh, ultimately what can be prosecuted uh, in the Irish state. Um, so the extent to which the Irish the, the, the Gardaí could act effectively uh, in an unofficial role in gathering evidence is one matter, but um, the extent to which they could invoke their powers uh, of compulsion, coercion, uh, without the assistance of the, the foreign state is a more complicated one. So when it comes to a sexual assault or rape that took place on board a military vessel, Edmund, that is within the jurisdiction of the Irish state and the Gardaí could bring a prosecution. But beyond that, in any other location overseas, it gets more complicated. Uh, that would be the case. Um, again, however, the, the jurisdiction of the Gardaí to act uh, and investigate uh, on a military vessel, obviously that's subject to the, 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 uh, the proposals or the proposed changes that are to be introduced. Uh, traditionally, that would be a matter uh, subject to military law and military, military jurisdiction. So they, those such offences would certainly and, and could certainly be investigated. But as matters stand, they would be a matter for the military police. So do you see with what has been announced today by the Gardaí that amendments would be needed now to existing legislation so that the Gardaí would have the powers that they need to investigate and prosecute if it came to that? Um, well, I, I, I obviously I haven't studied in detail because changes were introduced to the extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction of the Irish state by the, the Criminal Law Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act of 2019, implementing the Istanbul Convention. So changes were implemented there, and I couldn't really speak with, in detail to that mm-hmm. uh, particular issue. But certainly, uh, if changes are required, uh, there, is, there would be no difficulty in introducing such changes uh, and, and in extending uh, the extraterritorial jurisdiction of the Irish state in this way because there are, there are precedents. The, it's an exception to the general rule that Ireland does not prosecute even acts done by its own citizens outside Irish territory. But um, as with uh, with all rules, there are exceptions and those in, in modern times, those exceptions are becoming increasingly, increasingly more extensive. And what's the situation if an offence occurs, Edmund, on an overseas military base, an, an Irish military base overseas? Well, um, as matters stand, and again subject to my comments as regards the, 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 the recent act, uh, those would be committed on foreign territory. And, and as such, the, the primary criminal jurisdiction would be that of the, uh, of the foreign state uh, in which they were committed. 
um, that's that's without uh, prejudice to obviously the, um, the the application of military jurisdiction or military law in circumstances where um, breaches of military uh, discipline and also obviously um, breaches of of the law of of the, the of the criminal law mm-hmm. would be subject to. Uh, investigation and prosecution by the military tribunal. Edmund, thank you very the much. Irish for thank you for your uh, expertise on that. And Katie, just to finish, the Garda Commissioner said today that he expects more people to come forward. They've got 26 allegations of sexual assault uh, thus far. Do you agree with him with his expectation that there will be more? I would be very surprised if there wasn't more, just from what, um, what, what, have, what has come my way in the months and whatever it is, what is it now, 13, 15 months since we put out that documentary. And I know that um, the Women of Honour have also had other people approaching them with their stories as well. So uh, again, it comes back down to, do, will people will people trust that this time they will be taken seriously? Because I know uh, from conversations I've had with uh, some of the victims, they felt that certainly when they brought their stories to not just to the military authorities, but in some cases to the Gardaí, that they didn't get the response they had hoped for. Mm-hmm. So perhaps in this new environment, um, um, that will have been. Katie Hannan from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Oliver Cannon was talking about Destination Belfast with Anne McReynolds, the Chief Executive of Belfast Metropolitan Arts Centre. Am I right in, in saying uh, and in feeling that there's something different about Belfast uh, in the last you know, three to four years there's a youthful buzz about the place? Oh, no question. It's it's an amazing place and it always has been an amazing place, sometimes for not such good reasons. But where where I'm located, where the MAC is located in the city centre in the mm-hmm. Cathedral Quarter has completely changed in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, 15 years ago, it was just a series of car parks. And now you've got the MAC, the Oh Yeah Music Centre, the Black Box, Circus Full, and also the £380 million Ulster University redevelopment, which has yeah. just transformed the whole place. But that's just one wee tiny part of the city. There is definitely something in the air in Belfast. And I think that what we've got, the problem we have in Belfast, well, we have lots of problems, as we all do, but one of the issues is around communication. People, I think, sometimes in the rest of the island, understandably, think back to the the old days. But once people come here, they have such a good time and want to come back. So what we want to do is, is spread the word be a wee bit evangelical about it. I'm from Bellamina, which is where Reverend Ian Paisley <laughs> was. The, so I, evangel- evangelism is very easy to me. Um, and just tell people that just come up, give it a go. And don't just go to Titanic or the Giant's Causeway. Come into the city and yeah. see it's such a happening place. It is, you, like you come to the right place and uh, like this that happening atmosphere is, is just unbelievable. I was actually in the black box there two weeks ago and the Cathedral Quarter you described, I mean, it's pedestrianised in parts of it. It's just all nicely contained, isn't it? An Arthur's Square towards City Hall. There's a lively atmosphere during the day and as well as at night. Well, you're quite right. That's one of the, the things that make Belfast the special place it is. The fact that it's really compact. Mm. So, you know, it's been... 
I'm sure you know that it's been a complete epicentre for, you know, Universal HBO. Of course, you know, it was in Belfast that the the biggest TV show in the world kicked off about 14, 15 years ago, Game of Thrones. And since then, there have been so many mega budget movies. So somebody like Bill Murray, who I I don't even know if we're allowed to talk about Bill Murray anymore, but, (laughs) you know, whenever he loved the fact that... okay, thank you. Um, He loved that, you you know, he could wrap filming at six o'clock and be on the, the course ready to tee off at 6.20. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of proximity of everything. And yeah. um, it does mean that if you're, you know, if you go out at the weekend and you, you maybe kiss somebody you shouldn't have, there's a damn good chance you're going to bump into them at the <laughs> coffee shop on Monday morning. But that's another story entirely. I was going up to uh, concerts a couple of years ago and I kept just seeing the Game of Thrones cast um, holed up in the Fitzwilliam and, uh, but you can't go out of the you can't go out of the door in Belfast without bumping into. I mean, Helena Bonham Carter has either just left or is here. Christoph Waltz and Lucy Liu are in town at the minute. Yeah. Michael Fassbender has just left. Will you hear this? He um, he's just film finished a, a movie which is about an Irish a Belfast rap band who rap in Irish who are called Kneecap. Oh yes, of course, I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that's, I mean, it's, I, and uh, Pierce Brosnan is a huge, I mean, he's a big fan of the Mac because he's filmed a couple of shows. But yeah. whenever he, he visits the Mac a few times and he's he's a, he, he just thinks it's the bee's knees and the cat's whiskers because the Mac in the centre, it, it is a really unusual place, Oliver. It's, it's, you know, it's a really big space, I suppose. I mean, it's really kind of, that's the least you could say about it. It's but it is a beautiful the same building, size as, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. Give us a visual tour there on the wireless, please, Anne. Oh, gee. Well, um... The entrance. um, (laughs) So it doesn't look all that from the outside, to be perfectly frank, because it was built on a really compressed urban footprint. So it's really high. It's got... it's Basically, it's the same size as 72 three-bedroom semi-detached houses. Wow. Um, And whenever I was telling... This is such a name drop, but there you go. Whenever I was telling Pierce this, whenever he came in, it then occurred to me, when was the last time Pierce Brosnan was standing in a three-bedroom semi-detached house? (laughs) Probably a wee while ago. (laughs) Anyway... It's got two theatres and three amazing galleries and an artist in residence, residence studio and offices for resident arts groups and a cool cafe bar and a family room for kids and their families just to come and chill and draw and paint and read. Um, gosh, what else? There's seven rooms where you can do workshops and dance classes and rehearsals or have a tax seminar if that's what you'd rather do. And Oliver asked Anne about the art scene in Belfast. It is flying despite the fact that I mean, we look across the border at our friends in the rest of the island with total envy. And maybe that's just the human condition that you always want what's just beside you and not necessarily where you are. Yeah. I mean, we look at the, the the way in which artists are valued and art is valued in the rest of the island. And we don't necessarily feel that. So although you're quite right that people are relocating to Belfast, mm. I don't know that they're doing it because it's seen as a home or a haven for artists. It's a really hard place to be an artist. And yet we have punched above our weight in a way that is almost jaw-dropping. Like just, I mean, we've talked a wee bit about film, but just in terms of visual art, the Mac is right beside the University of Ulster and the School of Art there. And the Turner Prize, I know that people kind of like to sort of poke fun at the Turner Prize, but it kind of is the Oscars of the contemporary art world and it's globally renowned. And just in that one School of Art, there have been two prize turn, prize turn, uh, Turner Prize winners, five oh. nominees, and the most recent winner from the Array Collective in 2021. Like, that's that's unbelievable. Yeah. And that's just from one School of Art. You just said there that um, it's kind of hard to be an artist in the North. What do you mean by that? Well, it's hard to be an artist anywhere. 
mm. in any part of the world. Being an artist is to be on the fringes. Um, it is look almost. I mean, this is the thing that we in the Mac are so. It's one of the many things that that drive us. Artists are, I think, there are philosophers. They're the sort of the canary in the mine in a way. They they think more deeply sometimes than the rest of us because that's their job. That's what they do. They look at the world we're in and they have reflections and they they have some. They have lots of ideas about how to get out of the the massive issues we're facing. Yeah. But in Northern Ireland. I mean, just look at it. Look at the money. I know it's really boring to talk about the money, but if you have a president who's a poet, yeah. you, know, you have a place that really values art from mm-hmm. our perspective. And that translates into the money. So in 2021, th- your government down there decided to invest £28.52 in the cultural life of every citizen on the, in the jurisdiction. And up in the north, it was £5.38. Wow. And that's amazing. I'm amazed to hear you say that because you do hear from the arts bodies quite a lot about that it's not properly funded here and that we're lagging behind other countries. But you're giving a completely different perspective there to us. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that my, my friends and colleagues in the arts sector and the rest of the island are wrong. I would support them 100%. But in terms of us from where we are, we're, you know, we're in real trouble and we need to do something about it because you're quite right. Belfast is hiving and jiving with artists. Yeah. It is full of young people because there's such an energy here. But we know, Oliver, honest to God, we know that anybody who comes in from outside just raves about the people. And this is a, um, I was just thinking about how to tell you about this in a, in a short way. And I was remembering a story that somebody told me because we're always telling stories, aren't we? Um and it was about a, a two American guys who were coming into... They'd been around the world yeah. and they have a, had a really massive company and they were trying to decide where to locate their European uh, headquarters. So they'd been to Paris and Berlin and London and Dublin and they were now coming to Belfast. Of course, the, on the plane, they happened to be sitting beside uh, Suzanne Wiley, who at the time was our gorgeous and wonderful chief executive of Belfast City Council. And Suzanne got into conversation with them, as we do in the north, and said to them, oh, my goodness, you must come and meet the Lord Mayor. So they were like, oh, my God, we're going to get to meet the Lord Mayor of Belfast. Um, And that was all great. But then, of course, they lost their luggage. (laughs) <laughs> and they were travelling in jeans and tatty t-shirts. So they touched down, they thought, what well, we can't meet the Lord Mayor in jeans. So they went to their hotel, which was Europa, as we all know, mm-hmm. used to be the most bombed hotel in Europe, and yeah, it's now yeah. this wonderful hospitality centre. And they talked to the guy and he says, oh, just round the corner, if you go round the corner, um, I have a mate and he runs this gorgeous, amazing place for men's suits. Go round there and he'll get you sorted. Round they went got themselves beautiful suits, but they needed to be altered. The man who was serving them said, and he says, I can't, this is, you can't send it away because I have to, I have a meeting with the Lord Mayor at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. The guy says, my aunt's a seamstress. I'll take your suits <laughs> and I'll get the men, I'll get her to take them up in the leg. Apparently he wasn't exactly the longest of girth. And um, he went off, got the trousers and brought them back. And the, the guys who are now, their offices are now in Belfast. They are Mac friends, which means they've signed up to our corporate friends scheme. And his point was, before they even met the Lord Mayor, before they even began to run this, yes, this okay. they were in because Belfast is a place that makes you feel loved. We put our arms around you whenever you come up. Anne McReynolds talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on today with Claire Byrne, the OMA bombing.
Michael Gallagher spoke so eloquently about the loss of his son Aidan and the violence that damaged generations of his family. Now, continuing our commemoration on the coming up to the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and just months after the signing of the historic agreement, dissident Republicans calling themselves the Real IRA planted a bomb in Oma Town Centre killing 29 people including a woman pregnant with twins and it was the single worst atrocity in the history of the Troubles. Aidan Gallagher was just 21 when he died in that bomb and his father Michael has been campaigning for justice for those killed in the Oma bomb and Michael joins me on the line now. Good morning Michael. Hello, good morning Claire. It's lovely to talk to you again and you know every time I speak to you on programmes like this and I'm explaining to people you know your background and your involvement in all of this I'm acutely aware that I'm talking about your family and, and your boy and it's never easy. Absolutely. And and as the years go on, it actually gets more difficult because you realise that that's the that when we have children, it's when we get older that we really need and depend on those children. And it's 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 coming to those years that we wish that Aidan was here, that um, we. you know, he could he could do the things for us that we need to ask other people to do, and mm-hmm. he, he would he would do them for the love of us. And how do you feel now with all of this talk and all of the commemorating that's happening and all of these events coming up to the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement? What has it been like for you? It's been extremely difficult. In fact, I've been reflecting on it over the last few days, and uh, you know, we all hear we all remember the stories that. Uh, people say, you know, it wasn't until after my father or my uncle had died that I realised that he had come through the Second World War. Yet he never spoke about those things. And it's only now that I'm beginning to understand why those people didn't speak of those things. Because, you know, looking back, I wonder how we managed to survive. It was truly horrendous. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy that my grandchildren and not have to grow up being afraid of the sound of bombs or bullets. Mm -hmm. And and you've described yourself as a victim of the Troubles and a victim of peace. Explain to people, Michael, why you say that. On the 3rd of June 1984, my younger brother Hugh was 26 and married with two children. And he had been a member of the security forces, but he had left the security forces. But the provisional IRA had a policy of uh, assassinating Catholics even if they left the security forces and that that was what happened to you he, he on a Sunday on a on a Saturday night Sunday morning he was ambushed and um, there there was three shooters there we believe one of them was a woman um, and he had absolutely no chance and you know that that ruined completely ruined the family the thing about when we hear about a person dying we think of that person and our thoughts are for that person but this, the 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 ripple effect of that is that the family get destroyed their wider circle their friends their work colleagues it has a tremendous impact on 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 people's lives and we and during that period of the troubles we almost had 4000 people murdered and you know the, the trauma that's within society of that particular age of people is tremendous mm-hmm. um the reason i say that i'm a victim of the troubles is because of huey uh, and 
we're a victim of the peace because it was in peacetime that the Oma bomb happened. People, you've just described it as the worst atrocity of the Troubles. In fact, I would describe it as the first atrocity of peacetime. And Claire asked Michael about the damage done to his family from these brutal killings. And just going back to when Hugh was murdered and you say it ruined the family. Can, yes. can you tell me more about that, Michael? Because that, I mean, scarcely comprehensible that you've been through this twice. It's such close quarters. But when it ruined the family, what did what did that mean? Well, it meant that Huey's widow, uh, she, she was a very young woman at the time. She couldn't really comprehend. She couldn't deal with that amount of trauma. She had two young children. Uh, it, 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 it was just horrendous. And even though you're part of the family on the outside, you often feel helpless. Um, eventually, the family moved to England and uh, we have very little, sadly, we have very little contact with them. So, yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I, I. I don't know what. How you. Uh, you know, in your previous article, you were talking about cancer. I think this was our cancer in our time. Was you know these terrorist attacks, both from the loyalists and the republicans, yeah. and uh, sadly, it hasn't hasn't made one bit difference. You know, it's sad that those people should be walking about, enjoying life, and and, and we enjoying their company. But they're gone, and you know that's that's the, that that's the true legacy of the troubles is the fact that there's so many lives have been broken. And then you come to 1998 and the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, and given the trauma that your family had been through with the death of Hugh, did you dare to hope at that time that it was coming to an end? Well, uh, you know, myself, my wife, and three children went and voted. And we voted for peace because that's what any normal person would want. We we knew then that when our children came went out and uh, at the weekend, as young people do, um, there was less worry. There was less uh, thought of bomb attacks or shootings. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, we 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 just could not when when Oma happened um, again. I think that the entire town of Oma was traumatized. And probably much wider afield, the people were affected in Bunkrana and um, the people in Madrid. But the whole community was traumatised and uh, it was like as if we were sent back to a different age when people were more innocent and saying hello to to people we didn't even know. Um, And and that was the effect of that. But, you know, I, I, I think we've... I think what we've done is we, we we have managed to concentrate on the future, and um, we do deal with the past in our own way. It's still, you know, sometimes people come up to me and they say, "I'm sorry to bring this up." Well, it's there every day. We just suppress it. We manage it, mm-hmm. but we we also have to manage the present. Just uh, you describe going out to vote for peace, as you say, with your wife and your three children in April of 1998. And it's just that image of that really fragile hope and the delicate peace and the shattering of it, you know, in such a brutal way for your family. But the response to what happened in Oma was different, wasn't it, Michael? I know you've said this before, that it just led to that some kernel of that hope being retained by, by you and your family. Well, the only way I can put it is, at that point in time, 
we had a choice to make. We could have more of the same or we could have changed. And there's no doubt that the people of Ireland, North and South, came out and supported the families and sent a strong message to those people that believed that they could change our government by bullets and bombs, that that was not the way forward. You know, it's just unbelievable that these, these small group of people do not recognise the Garda Shikana, the police force of Ireland. They do not recognise the Irish Defence Forces. These organisations have been in the state for over 100 years and they are, are, are pretending to be the police force of Ireland and the army of Ireland. And, and, and it was just, it, it, I think that the message was extremely strong and we've seen it very recently in the attempted murder of Detective uh, John Caldwell mm -hmm. here in Oma, where, I mean, the amount of people that came out on the street from right across the community left no one on any doubt. And what was encouraging was a large number of that crowd was actually young people. Michael Gallagher from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon on the live line, Philip Badger Hayes was in for Joe and his first caller, Paul, was concerned about something he observed on the road. Yes, it's uh, an observation I've made over the last couple of years and it came to my attention particularly yesterday when um, this uh, these trucks, uh, 40-foot trailers I think they're called, carrying bales of rectangular and circular hay bales with them and they're being um, moving obviously uh, fodder etc from east to west or wherever and um, I think I feel quite vulnerable or I think as I believe they're dangerous and uh, the point came yesterday when I was behind one of these 40 foot trucks with, with uh, bales on them and the end one at the rear was slightly at a tilt and I said to myself that looks as if it's moved or possibly could come off which could create huge damage uh, as I've seen in, in my travels over the years, one or two of these bales in against ditches and whatever. And my, my surprise is that these are only strapped in with these uh, ropes as such uh, on each bale. They're, four, they're generally four bales high, maybe seven or eight along the trailer of a 40 foot. And, four um, bales high, Paulie. You sure you saw it? Four bales high. Four bales high. They generally are. Yep, yep. Because and, I, uh, in, in my experience, I would have thought that, that they're generally about sort of twelve feet high with three bales. If you're talking about the round bales, or are you talking about square bales? It, well, square bales are four, four, four bales high. Okay. Okay. Um, so I just sort of uh, wondered. What is the general public's uh, impression of these? Because I am certainly very wary of them when when I travel, and I I God forgive that if the truck did have to swerve to avoid a car or went into the back of a car, these bales I believe would not uh, stay in place on the back of the trailers and would cause horrific damage. You saw uh, an accident I, a number of years ago that is informing this fear of yours. I did, yes, many, many years ago. I was in the motor trade and we had a customer driving, I believe it was on the Galway Dublin Road uh, my, uh, uh, one evening 
and uh, uh, 40 years no driving uh, problems or issues and uh, unfortunately I believe one of these trucks came around the corner one of the bales fell off crushed the car completely crushed him and all I can say is when I saw the car it was not not a nice sight so um, maybe I'm hyping this up or not but I do feel uh, what is the law? I did go on to the RSA, Road Safety Authority, um, tried to phone them yesterday and today. I uh, couldn't get through, was referred to uh, website lines. And uh, like this morning at quarter past 11, I rang. I tried three different extensions and all was being played back was music. So and what after- was it you were trying to find out, Paul? Trying to find out what are the rules and regulations about the carriage of these. Okay. Uh, well, I think there, there, there is a weight limitation of 20 tonnes, but you might remember back a couple of years ago, it was the IFA who lobbied successfully for a removal of the height restriction uh, on mm. the transport of fodder because I think that they, there was about a foot in the difference or something like that that was right. going to mean that it would be impossible for guys transporting to move three bales high, that they would have to go to two bales, which would just make any journey uneconomical. But I think the consequence of that is, and I'm open to correction on this, Mm. but I think that the transportation of fodder, agricultural fodder, does not have a height restriction on it. Yes, I I looked up the uh, website this morning, um, uh, webfleet.com, and uh, the question is, what is the max lorry height in Ireland or load? Uh, What is the maximum legal height allowed for lorries on Irish roads? Question mark. The maximum height is 4.65 metres, including load being carried. This does not apply to vehicles or combinations of vehicles and trailers transporting agricultural produce, e.g. hay, straw and other baled animal fodder. So, uh, that's is that a, a no means to an end type of thing? Mm. Well, actually, do you know what? I've just seen the same thing now as you're talking there. I was reading it on the RSA website. All right. Hay, yeah. silage, straw or any other animal mm. fodder which has no height limit. Mm. So I'd just be interested to hear the observations uh, of road users uh, as to their experiences. As I, I do believe uh, they are dangerous. I've very rarely seen them in trucks with sides on the trailers. Then John called Philip. Well, you, yeah. you, you deal in hay and straw on the transportation Yeah, I, I, I deal in hay and straw and there's a, there's a lot of other farmers around County Kildare and various areas that deal in it as well. But just listen to that gentleman speak, and there are no disrespect to him, but um, back uh, about approximately 10 years ago when Leo Varaka was Minister of Transport, um, there was a problem there at the time. Uh, they reverted the height restrictions of loads from 5.3 metres back to 4.6 at the time, and it wasn't challenged in time. But anyway, IFA did lobby it, and uh, the IRHA, the Irish Road Haulers Association, challenged it as well. But um, it went on and on and there was no success in it. So there was Sorry, John, just explain to us what was the problem with that reduction? What limitation was it going to place upon you? Well, I tell you exactly. Well, I, 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 I myself have no lorries, but um, I have friends there that has lorries and I have a man that buys a lot of straw up in the north of Ireland there with a contract for years with him. And I tell you exactly what it was going to do. It was going to create an extra cost. Like we'll, we'll, we'll call, we'll go to the west of Ireland 
farmers um, selling straw out of the Thai Kildare area and selling it to the west of Ireland, uh, the hauliers were saying that it was going to cost a lot more to bring the straw down if the if the loads were reverted from 5.3 metres back okay. to 4.6. Because there'd be how many less bales on each load? Well, you're, 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 what you're doing is we on the four by trees, which is uh, they're, they're three foot high, so there'd be four trees is twelve foot, so there'd be, be only bringing three high then, when it'd be back to four point six meters, and uh, it was going to have um, an excessive um, uh, um, hike on the price okay. of, of the, the haul. So the, so the so IFA lobbied successfully. The height restriction was lifted for agricultural. Uh, goods, well, for, for fodder specifically, uh, yes. meaning now, is there any height restriction? Like, I mean, if I wanted to drive from Kildare to the west of Ireland with five bales high, would I be allowed to? Well, as I was saying to you, we we, we, we went, there was a, a group of people, including myself, went to meet Leo Varaka in the Dáil and we had a couple of meetings up there. Leo, as I said to you, was Minister of Transport at the time. And uh, we went up to him and uh, we actually had to go to the RSA. We had to go to CIE and various other places at the time, um, the NRA and that, and to get um, confirmation that they had no problem with agricultural produce like lehebe hay and straw, that there weren't damaging bridges or there wasn't, wasn't causing any, any damage anywhere. Now, I, I know what this gentleman has said in, uh, there on the line that um, he has seen straw on the side of the road. But I can confirm the 99% of the hauliers that are out there are tying down the loads 100%. But, like, I mean, it's it's like car drivers or lorry drivers. You'll always have the 1% that doesn't do things correctly. And, like, I mean, is everybody else to be penalised for the 1% mm, of mm. the people that do things wrong? But more, any lorries that ever come to me for hay or straw, they're always properly tied down. We give them a hand. We make sure that everything is tied down, that the loads are square going out and that they're um, 100% going up the road. That's John on the live line with Philip Badger Hayes. And after the naming of Home of the Year on RTE1 TV, Claire Byrne was joined by two interior design experts in the morning, Roisin Murphy and Kate O'Driscoll. Thank We've always much. been obsessed with people's houses, haven't we? <laughs> oh, We've always been. 100%. We love a, nose, love a nose into people's houses. But now it has really um, crossed the Rubicon, isn't it? Because we can actually have a peek inside lots of different houses, Kate, including your own. I was having a look Absolutely, this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so in we renovated our house in Rathmines um, in 2018. And at that stage, there was very few home accounts showing kind of the nuts and bolts of renovations, the warts and all kind of approach. Um, so I kind of looked to a lot of the UK pages at the time. Um, so I set up a page called Victorian Rathmines and now that just kind of grew legs, I suppose, through COVIDs and through lockdowns. Everyone looked at their home and how they were living in it and how to use every space. There's no good room anymore. So I think, yeah, everyone's looking for inspiration. There. And Roshin, how would you feel about someone having a snoop inside your house? If they paid me dearly, I'd allow them to do it. <laughs> I'm funny about the inside of my home um, and just, I don't know what it is. It's very private space. Um, there is talk of me allowing somebody in uh, this summer to look at it, but it's very, I am very eccentric in my interiors, very eccentric and, and particularly in my own. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, that thing where do unto others as you do unto yourself. I really apply that rule to myself. Um, and my kids used to come home and, and complain and dream of living in a in a, a modern semi-D that didn't have things hanging out. And I have never painted my house, for instance. I've let it's an old house, so I've let that 
the line all the story of the house and you can see some of the lads coming in to do work and they're like going why she put like you know bringing something really nice in and going my god almighty <laughs> but I I really it's my it's like a, a poem to me now that sounds very pretentious but that said I'm very I'm very particular about where it goes at mm. the moment What gives me anxiety when I look at pictures Kate even your pictures not a speck of <laughs> dust or dirt or does that is that a pressure when you're taking photographs I think you can take photographs at any time of the day. You don't have to share them at the same time. So I think we all have to take interiors that we see on Instagram with a pinch of salt. This yeah. isn't how people live. Some people choose to show, show like everything, you know, the mess, the absolute chaos. But I choose kind of to show the nice parts of interiors and kind of maybe teach people about how to make the best out of their spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like we have to be really cognizant that not everyone's home actually looks like this 24 hours a day. No, and it couldn't. No, or, otherwise, it's not a home. No, you're I, not living I, in it. I was looking this morning at the inside of Cara Delavine's home. I know you liked it because it's got lots of colour, Roisin, and it is fa- absolutely fabulous. Yeah. But does she does she actually do any living there? Oh, no, I think she does partying. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Cara Delavine is an ad for not settling, um, <laughs> having an alternative lifestyle and keeping your eyebrows. She has done it. Her interiors are insane. But I I think the person who I was most surprised by, I don't know if you know her, but Gwyneth Paltrow's house yeah. was the one for me. I am a bit of a kind of a, like a celebrity house snoop. Um, partly because years and years ago, I don't know, you, neither of you will remember this programme. It was a programme called Beyond the Hall Door where we did these house visits years ago. I remember ago. that. Right. Yeah. Well, there was the big fantasy where at the time we said we were going to do this programme and all the equivalent other halves were going, nobody's going to want to see it in somebody else's house. That's a ridiculous. <laughs> interiors were very much the female space, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And one of the lads said, I would would love to look into Niall Quinn's house though. And so consequently to that, I've always thought, you know, that obsession with how if you had loads of money, does he like have a golf links? Does he have a little kind of small putting green somewhere? Do you know what I mean? I like, like if you had money and eccentricities, what would you put into your house? Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's what fascinates me. And also, obviously, it's a funny kind of period around housing as well in Ireland. You kind of feel a bit kind of uh, like there is the housing crisis too. So there's a kind of a moment where I think uh, we're all thinking about how we live. Kate O'Driscoll and Roisin Murphy from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.